Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Okay, if everybody will kind of settle down, I think we have a, a couple of announcements that we need to remind everybody of. One is what just on the screen, and that is that we have our family night this Saturday uh, night for the church family to spend a little time up uh, up here fellowship, encouraging one another, having a good time, and then we're going to show the film, the Jesus movie. That's usually what it's referred to. That's uh, done by Campus Crusade for Christ, as I announced on Sunday, used by many different organizations for evangelism and quite effectively. And usually the story goes that somebody pull in an old truck, pull up to a uh, village somewhere where they don't have any, probably any TV and haven't ever seen a movie, and they'll uh, plug in a generator. I hope it's not as noisy as the ones we use. Then you can't hear the movie. Turn on a uh, laptop, an LCD projector, and project the movie up on the side of the building, and and it's very effective with uh, in, in Islamic evangelism. It's in about 45 or 48 languages now. You can pick the one you want. So um, <clears throat> that will be Saturday night, Saturday morning prep school meeting at 8:30. And then uh, normal schedule Sunday. Is there a, uh, anything else coming up? No? Okay. Well, before we get started, let's have a, uh, let's open in prayer. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure you're in fellowship, ready to study the word. Then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that you have revealed yourself to us in your word. And as we study your word, we see that you have progressively revealed yourself down through the ages, uh, increment upon increment, so that in your wisdom you have chosen to reveal yourself in certain ways and through certain figures and through certain uh, physical objects, through certain depictions, so that we could be prepared for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. And the Old Testament is a forerunner, a depiction, a foreshadowing of the person work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then when we get into the New Testament, we see the explanation, the further development of all that was involved in bringing about our salvation and the great spiritual life that we have in the church age. Now, fathers, we continue to study out the tabernacle, May we gain a greater appreciation for the tremendous doctrine that is there, that's uh, represented in the imagery that we find in the tabernacle, and that we might then come to have a better understanding and appreciation of the challenge that you set before us in the New Testament in the Epistle to the Hebrews. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we're continuing our study in Hebrews by studying the Old Testament backgrounds to Hebrews chapter 9, which involves a study of the tabernacle. As I pointed out at the, I think at the beginning of this sub-series back in early May when we first got started, it seems like if it's not 
a hurricane or a trip to Israel or just a summer uh, thunderstorm that floods the streets. It's one or many of the above have interfered on Thursday night. And so actually we haven't had that many lessons. It's just that we have had that many interruptions over the past uh, four or five months. But we're coming close to the end of our study. This week and next week we'll be on the Ark of the Covenant, and then after that dealing with some specifics related to the role of the high priest, his garments and uh, paraphernalia and everything related to the high priest of Israel as a depiction of Jesus Christ, who is our high priest. And then we'll sort of wrap things up with a special study of the temple down through the ages. So we're looking at the tabernacle, and you might as well open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 25. Exodus chapter uh, 25, where we see the uh, description of the Ark of the Covenant, the mandate to Moses to build the Ark of the Covenant, which is actually the centerpiece of the tabernacle. It's the last thing, the piece of furniture that we're coming to, but it is the most important, the most significant aspect of the, uh, of the of the tabernacle because this is the place where God took up his residence on earth through the presence of the cloud or the pillar of fire, which was later referred to by the rabbis as the Shekinah. From the Hebrew word shakan, meaning to uh, dwell, it's the dwelling place of God. It's never referred to that in the Old Testament, but it is referred to that. That term is developed and coined by the rabbis, so we often speak of the Shekinah glory or the dwelling glory of God, and we see that depicted in this uh, artist depiction of the tabernacle at night with the pillar of fire hovering over the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant was located. Now, in the last several weeks, we've gone through the furniture that we find inside the holy place. There is the outer room, the holy, the holy place where you have the uh, candle, the candelabra, the menorah. The on the left, the table of showbread on the right, and the altar of incense in the middle, just against the veil. Last time we talked about the veil. The golden candlestick pictures Jesus Christ as the light of the world. The table of showbread depicts Jesus Christ as the bread of life. The altar of uh, incense depicts Jesus Christ as our intercessor, the one who is continually praying for us. So each of these depicts something about his ministry and his work, and tonight we're going to look at the Ark of the Covenant as Christ our propitiator. Christ our propitiator. The rabbis said that the Ark was in the exact center of the whole world, standing on the starting point of creation. And they believed that Israel was at the center of the world, Jerusalem was at the center of Israel, the temple was at the center of Jerusalem, and the ark was at the center of the temple. Now, they're not talking about a physical center, but an idea at the very center of everything is God and his dwelling upon the earth. Now, there's a lot of questions that people have about the Ark of the Covenant, and that's been generated a lot by uh, the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark 
And so people have uh, all kinds of different ideas as to what happened to the Ark. There's been a lot of speculation about what happened to the Ark of the Covenant ever since that film came out in the early 80s. And so one of the things I want to get to, but probably next week and not this week, is some of the ideas as to what happened to the Ark of the Covenant and where the Ark of the Covenant might most likely be today. So, first of all, let's begin in an orderly manner by looking at the passage in question, Exodus 25:10 through 22, as well as Exodus 37:1 through 9, are our central passages for uh, God's uh, revelation of the Ark. Is mandate to Moses to build the Ark of the Covenant. So it begins, uh, all of the descriptions, all of the uh, uh, mandates for building the, the tabernacle begin in chapter 25, and the first nine verses provide just a general overview of what the people should give and provide in order to build the tabernacle according to the pattern that God has set uh, before Moses, and the earthly tabernacle is apparently modeled after a heavenly prototype, and we'll get into that some more when we get into uh, the latter part of Hebrews 9 and into Hebrews chapter 10. The ark itself is, uh, the, na- the ark comes from the Hebrew word aron, and the word aron simply means a box or a chest, and it's even used to describe the coffin for uh, Joseph as he, when he was buried in the coffin they brought him out in when they brought him out, uh, out from Egypt. So it's just a simple word for any box or chest. Now in English we use the word ark, A-R-K, and it's the same word that is used for the uh, ship or barge that Noah built, but it is actually a different word in the Hebrew. The Hebrew word for the Ark of Noah as well as the uh, papyrus basket that uh, Moses' mother put the infant Moses in when uh, she set him adrift on the, on the Nile River comes from the Hebrew noun teva, T-E-B-A, H, and the B is a uh, uh, soft B, so it's usually pronounced with a, like it's a V. And so that is a different idea. Tava is used of a, some sort of vessel that floats upon the water, but the around the ark is a box or a chest. There are several different ways in which this uh, is used. Thirty-four times the ark is referred to as the ark of God. Sometimes that's uh, expanded a little bit, the ark of the God of Israel. But primarily the two terms are the ark of God, 34 times, and the ark of the covenant of Yahweh, 31 times. This is a uh, key understanding of the ark is that it is the it belongs to God. It is a place of His. Uh, dwelling. In uh, Exodus chapter 25, verse 8, we read, Let them construct for me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. And then in verse 22, And there I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, 
from between the two cherubim which are upon the ark of the testimony, I will speak to you about all that I will give you in commandment for the sons of Israel. So this is, uh, the ark becomes the center of Israel's relationship with God. Now, some of the ways in which the ark is described or referred to in the Old Testament, it's called the ark of the testimony. The ark of the testimony in Exodus 25, uh, 22, which we just saw, and this emphasizes the fact that one of the three things that was uh, contained in the ark were the uh, tablets of the Ten Commandments. And the tablets of the Ten Commandments were the prologue to the Mosaic Law. The Mosaic Law was uh, functionally the constitution for the nation. It was their body of laws. It contained both ceremonial laws, ritual laws for their spiritual life, as well as the criminal and civil laws for the conduct of the nation. And Israel, as we'll see, violated the Mosaic Law while, even while it was being given to Moses. They were uh, calling upon, they became impatient, called upon Aaron to uh, make for them a, a golden calf, an idol of God. And so they're breaking that even as, as God is giving the, uh, the, the law so that the presence of the law is a legal witness of God's, uh, the way God is going to conduct himself in relationship to Israel, and it's a legal witness against Israel's disobedience, as we'll see. So that's why it's called the Ark of the Testimony, because the law's presence serves as a witness to uh, God's dealings with Israel. It's called the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord in Numbers 10, 33, 31 times. It's called the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh, uh, Deuteronomy 10.8 and Judges 20.27 20, are two of those passages. The term Yahweh is always associated with God's covenant with Israel in a special way that he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the God who redeemed Israel from slavery in, in, uh, in Egypt. It is referred to as the Ark of God in 1 Samuel 3.3 3, and the Ark of the God of Israel in 1 Samuel chapter 2, and this is because it's association with God who is the uh, God of Israel. It's referred to in 1 Kings 2.26 as the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, the ark of the Lord God. It's referred to as the holy ark in 2 Chronicles 35.3, which emphasizes the fact that it is uh, set apart and distinct. This is a key element that we I emphasized last time related to the veils, the outer curtains as well as the, the curtains around the holy place itself, the tabernacle itself proper, as well as the veil between the outer holy place and the inner holy of holies. All of these emphasize that God has to be approached on his terms. God is a holy God. He is set apart and distinct and man cannot come into his presence on his own terms. He has to come into the presence of God on God's terms. And so the, uh, there is this distinctiveness about God, and that's a good way to, to translate holiness. It's not, it, it can pick up the ideas of moral purity, which really comes from righteousness later on, but the core idea in Kadash has to do with uniqueness, distinctiveness, 
God is totally other. It relates to the fact that he is uh, the creator. We are the creature. So this is the holy ark. It is set apart uh, specifically for the dwelling of God. And then in Psalm 132, verse 8, it is referred to as the ark of thy strength. So these are some of the terms that are used to refer to the ark, and each of these terms emphasizes uh, a little different aspect of its role and its significance. The description of the construction of the ark begins in uh, Exodus 25, verse 10. They shall make an ark of acacia wood, and as we've seen every time we've gone through these uh, different pieces of furniture, they're all made out of acacia wood or frequently made out of acacia wood and then covered with a metal. In the case of the a brazen altar, it's covered with bronze because its role is to serve as a burnt offering, so it needs to be able to withstand the heat and the fire uh, representing judgment. But when we get into the other aspects, the other pieces of furniture inside the, uh, the tabernacle itself, the acacia wood is covered with gold. It is a depiction of the humanity of Christ pictured by the wood united with the uh, pure gold, which represents his deity. Uh, the acacia wood itself is a tree that grows in the Sinai Desert. They have many of them in Israel. You can drive down the streets of Tel Aviv in the springtime, and they produce a, a bloom on them that is not, and they, they, they don't look uh, very different from uh, a mimosa tree. And the, the blossom that they have is uh, reminds me, it's, it's a bright red, it reminds me of the, uh, of the, of a mimosa tree, which is usually, at least around here, is more pink and white. But it is an indestructible wood, it is a very hard wood. In fact, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, when the rabbis translated the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek, in about the second to third century BC, they just translated acacia wood as incorruptible wood so that the wood not only depicts the humanity of Christ, but it also depicts that he, his impeccability, that he was sinless. He was without sin, without guilt, without a, a, either a sin nature or personal sin, which is emphasized in various passages in the New Testament. For example, 1 Peter 1, 18 through 20, because we know that we were not redeemed with corruptible things such as silver or gold from our futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood is of a lamb unblemished and spotless. A lamb without spot or blemish was a depiction of the impeccability of Jesus Christ. And so the sacrifice for sin, for cleansing, had to be the sacrifice of a lamb that was without spot or blemish. The blood was a representative uh, metaphor uh, depicting the shedding of blood, a violent kind of death, and the blood represents a death, and in this case it represents the spiritual death of Jesus Christ. It wasn't his physical death, but his spiritual death that paid the penalty for our sins. When he was uh, cr- crucified, when he was uh, when God the Father imputed to him the sins of the world between 12 noon and 3 p.m. during that day on Golgotha, when it became dark. This was the time when Jesus Christ is separated from the Father judicially, not in terms of his being, but in terms of 
uh, it's a judicial judgment that is poured out upon him. Of course, the second person of the Trinity can never be separated uh, ontologically. Thought I'd throw a good word to wake everybody up. Yeah, see, shook somebody, shook up somebody back in the recording sector. You can't separate him ontologically or metaphysically in terms of his essential being, but he is separated judicially as he bears our sins in his own body on the cross. Another verse that speaks of this more clearly is Hebrews 4.15, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin so that he is absolutely perfect in his humanity and thus able to go to the cross and to serve as our substitute. Now, when we we look at the ark, it is wood covered with gold, and in its construction, there a lot of there, there's some different ideas about how the ark was constructed. Some think that a gold leaf was placed on the ark, but the the rabbis taught that that actually three boxes were made that were that fit together uh, very tightly. So you had the box of wood, then there was an inner box of gold that slid down inside the uh, wooden box, just a perfect fit. And then there was an outer box that was gold that the wood box then fit in so that the wooden box is then completely encased between the uh, inner and outer gold boxes without any uh, any room there, just a smooth fit. We don't know exactly how it was constructed because no one has seen it, but we uh, there's these ideas that have been passed down in, uh, in Jewish tradition. So that speaks of his humanity and his deity united together in the one person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the ark itself had three uh, things that were contained within it. And these are alluded to in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 3 and 4, which is the technically the passage where we are studying. Verse 3 of Hebrews 9, behind the second veil there was a tabernacle, which is called the Holy of Holies, having a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden jar holding the manna, 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 and Aaron's rod which budded, and the tables of the covenant. So these three things are said to be contained within the Ark of the Covenant. Now there is some discrepancy our disagreement as to, uh, and how we understand some other verses because there seems to be a contradiction, but it's probably uh, not an actual, con- uh, an actual uh, contradiction. In 1 Kings 8, verse 9, uh, we're told that there was nothing in the ark except the two tablets of stone, which Moses put there at Horeb. That's another term for Mount Sinai, where the Lord made a covenant with the sons of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. But this is done at the time that that, uh, Solomon dedicates the temple. And it's thought that by that time, for whatever reason, the uh, Aaron's rod that had budded 
and the manna are no longer uh, associated or contained within the Ark of the Covenant, that somewhere along the line they had either been lost or removed. There is another discrepancy in terms of a Greek, excuse me, in terms of the Hebrew preposition. In Deuteronomy 10, verse 5, suggests that they were kept beside the ark. And in Deuteronomy 31, uh, excuse me, Deuteronomy 10, 5 says it's the Ten Commandments were in the ark. And in Deuteronomy 31, 26, uses the Hebrew preposition uh, mitzar, which means uh, beside. Uh, the ark. Now, r- the rabbis had an interesting way of pulling this together, uh, which may be close to the truth, and that is that the uh, tablets that M- Moses was told to, uh, to to write a second time, because the first set was broken when he came down from the mountain after he had received the law, and he hears the uh, the orgy going on at the base of the mountain the, with the uh, Jews who've had Aaron construct the, uh, the uh, uh, golden calf. And so he throws the tablets down and they break. So there's a second set that's made according to Deuteronomy chapter 10. And those are the ones that are in the ark, but it is the broken tablets, the broken stone tablets that were put in the uh, tabernacle beside the ark. And that is very likely. The rabbis believed that both the broken tablets as well as the whole tablets stayed with the ark. The broken tablets were a picture of how Israel had broken the law and the uh, tablets that were uh, restored pictured God's grace and forgiveness uh, to the nation despite their sinfulness. So you have these three elements. The first are the, uh, relates to the tablets of stone on which the Ten Commandments were written, which depicts the covenant that God has made with Israel. That's the foundation of his relationship with Israel. The second thing is Aaron's uh, rod. It was the staff of his authority as the high priest. It was cut from an almond tree, and it, and an episode we'll study in a minute. Uh, it was placed in the tent of meeting overnight, and the next morning it had sprouted green leaves and, in fact, bore fruit, something that uh, could not transpire simply overnight without a miracle being involved. And then the last element that was contained within the ark was the uh, last of the angel food that God provided, the original angel food in the wilderness, the manna. And uh, we'll look at each of these in just a second. Now, by way of introduction to these contents, these three elements are important because they represent two things. On the one hand, they represent God's judgment, and on the other hand, they represent God's grace. Both are depicted here. On the one hand, they represent the failure of Israel to accept what God has provided for them, and on the other hand, they also depict God's provision of uh, for continued provision for Israel, His continued faithfulness to them over time, and ultimately they are t- are types of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
the law, the tablets, uh, indicate their rejection of God's law, and ultimately they will reject God's standard of righteousness when they reject the Lord Jesus Christ. In the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord Jesus Christ gives a direct confrontation with the Pharisees, and the key verse for understanding the Sermon on the Mount is when Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you won't see the kingdom of God. And the point that he is making is that uh, that the people all thought that the Pharisees were extremely righteous. They were the best you could be. They prayed seven times a day. They went to the temple uh, three times a day. They did everything right. They were rigorous in their application of the law. So everyone believed that, that the greatest human righteousness you could possibly have is that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And yet Jesus comes along, and in his interpretation of the Mosaic Law, which is what the Sermon on the Mount is, he's going to show that the righteousness that the Pharisees have is really a diluted righteousness, and they have reinterpreted the law in such a way that it could be followed legalistically. But his point is that no one can fulfill the righteousness of the law on their own. It has to be a different kind of righteousness, a righteousness that is given. So the Mosaic Law represents the kind of righteousness that men must have in order to have fellowship with God. The purpose of giving the law was to show that man can't do it on his own and that God must do it for them. So it is a the broken law is a picture of man's failure to live up to God's law, and God's law depicts, of course, the righteousness of God and the righteousness that is in Christ. He fulfills the law in his humanity, thus making it possible for us to have salvation. So the Mosaic law represents this rejection of God's law, rejection of righteousness, as well as its ultimate fulfillment in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Another aspect is that the Ten Commandments are a legal witness of Israel's legal guilt in terms of violating God's contract, the Mosaic Law, for the Ten Commandments are just that that prelude to the uh, to the Mosaic Law to got to the Constitution of Israel. It's interesting in the ancient world that. Normally in other cultures where they worship other gods, what would be in the center of their temple would be a statue or idol of the god. And whenever they had entered into legal contracts, this is a place where they would validate or deposit them. And now what we have, one of the reasons we have the, the Mosaic Law in the Ark of the Covenant is that this is one of the copies placed before God that would serve as the standard for indicting Israel if they violated that particular uh, that particular uh, contract. It's just like when you uh, enter into a a will, you have to go down to the courthouse and probate it, and then that will is going to be put on file at the courthouse. If you get married, uh, you have to get a marriage license, and you go and you you get married, and the pastor signs the marriage license, and then that is sent in. Uh, to the county, and the county is going to uh, register that. And it's really not until that marriage license is sent in that the the deal is done. Um, it's it's that signature. The IDs don't have anything to do with it. It's that signature and mailing it in. You know, three days later, 
you can um, you can still uh, not mail it in, and you're not married yet. First time I did a, I came back to Houston in '91. I did a wedding, and I had not done one in several years. hadn't done one in Harris County in a while, and it wasn't at a church, and I didn't have a secretary or anybody else covering all the bases. And I kept reminding the couple, make sure you get me the marriage license so that I can sign that. Because in all of the uh, commotion and hubbub and everything that goes on at the wedding, I don't want to, we don't want to forget that. So, uh, we did the wedding over the junior league used to be over there on, uh, on 610. Did the wedding and, and I never gave it a thought. Just it totally slipped my mind to get the marriage license. Well, about four nights later, Bible class, suddenly this couple taps me on the shoulder after class. We need you to sign the marriage license, but there's a little problem. I went, hmm, what's the problem? Well, and they both just graduated from A&M. This is not casting any aspersions on Aggies. They had both just graduated from Texas A&M, and they had gone to get their license. They'd had finals the week before, so they'd gone to get their license on Thursday. They were getting married on Saturday evening. Now, in the old days, I hate saying that. It makes me sound like I'm old and I'm not, but back in the 70s and early 80s, I don't know when the law changed, that you, you could go get your, your, your marriage license and it was, it was valid at that point. But somewhere in the late 80s it changed and it wasn't, marriage licenses in Texas weren't valid for 48 hours. They didn't go get their marriage license in whatever county, Tom, you'd know, whatever county College Station is in. They didn't go get their marriage license until Friday morning which means it wasn't valid on Saturday night. So I just told them, well, we'll just date it for Sunday, and you'll just have a three-day or two-day anniversary. Make that kind of special. So it's the signing of the marriage license that legalizes it. It's a contract. And so Israel has entered into a contract with God, and that contract is placed as a matter of record, in the Ark of the Covenant as a testimony and witness uh, to be used against them in the case of their violation of the, of, of the law. So that's, what the, uh, that's the significance of the Mosaic Law. The bread, on the other hand, represents God's spiritual sustenance, his provision of spiritual nourishment for the people, both in terms of of the written bread, Jesus said in uh, Matthew 4, 4, that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. And so he's talking about the fact that the bread represents the spiritual food that God provides. So you have the bread of the word of God, the written word of God, and then we have the bread of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ who said, I am the bread of life. So the manna is used to typify or to uh, uh, indicate certain aspects of the provision of God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And, of course, they rejected that in the wilderness and complained about God's provision of the bread, that it was the same thing every day, and so it was boring. Gee, we still get the same complaint about the teaching of God's Word. We have to jazz it up with uh, 
choruses and and uh, music and rock bands and everything else. People just don't want to hear the Word of God. Now, it's interesting. I'm trying to figure out. I think David Dunn was asking me about this the other day. In Matthew 14, I believe, there's a passage where the... Um, Disciples are going out with Jesus in the boat. And it says in the text that they worshipped him saying, and he had asked a question in the verse before, who do, you, who do you say that I am? And that verse says they worshipped him saying, you are Jesus, the Son of God. Now, that's a participle there that's translated with that ing verb, saying. And David called me up and he said, am I right in taking that as a participle of means? And I looked at it and I said, yeah, I think that's the only thing it can be. Because participles in Greek can have ten or so different meanings. They can be a participle, they're adverbial, they can be a participle of manner or cause or concession or means and three or four attendant circumstance, three or four other categories. And usually this is left untranslated when it comes into English, which is standard procedure for translators. Sometimes they'll they'll interpret it. But usually they leave they should leave the interpretation to a pastor and they should just simply translate. So they translate it rather ambiguously. They worship him saying, but if it's a participle of means they worship him by saying, you are Jesus, the Son of God. See, worship is just the recognition that Jesus is the Son of God. That's worship. You don't have to clap your hands and stomp your feet and have a rock band and sing choruses and, and all these other things that people define today as worship. It's just very simple. It's the study of God's Word. It's the recognition of divine truth. It's the acceptance of divine truth. And so Jesus as the living bread is the incarnation of God's revelation, the highest form of his revelation to us. And when people recognize that and accept it, that is worship. And the study of God's word is the highest form of worship that there can be. And it doesn't have to be uh, sugar-coated with all kinds of other activities. Just accept it. But the Jews rejected it. It was the manna was boring, just like so many people reject the word today that, because they say that it is, it is boring. And then the budding rod, the rod of Aaron, is a depiction of life coming where there was death. A, a staff or a rod is a, it's, it's cut from a dead piece of wood, and there is no life there, and yet, God miraculously brought life where there was death, and that can have one of two uh, one of two significances. One, it could relate to regeneration, where God creates spiritual life where there's spiritual death, and it can relate to regeneration. In this case, I think it's a picture. Excuse me, not regeneration, resurrection. Because it's a picture of resurrection, because it is the Lord Jesus Christ who, in His resurrection. Uh, God raises him from the dead, validates and affirms all that he did on the cross in dying on the cross for our sins and paying that penalty for us. 
And so he is our high priest. When he is resurrected, then he's ascended to heaven and begins that new role as our high priest in heaven. So these three things deal with rejection. The Israelites had rejected Aaron's leadership. Uh, they wanted a couple of others to be high priest, and they were blaming Moses for just putting members of his own family in leadership. And so God is going to show that it wasn't, Aaron, it wasn't Moses that chose Aaron. God chose Aaron. So each of these depicts Israel rejecting something God provided and on the other hand, God's grace in ultimately providing the uh, antitype to each of these, uh, Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of the law, Jesus Christ, who is the eternal bread of life, and Jesus Christ, who is <clears throat> our high priest. Now, let's take a minute, a little more than a minute, actually, and look at each of these things in a little more uh, in a little more detail. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 16. Exodus chapter 16, and we will see the episode with the manna. Now, manna, the name, comes from the Hebrew word uh, minhu, which means, what is this? And uh, you could paraphrase that as, what's that? Or what it is? They didn't know what it was. And so they were asked the question. They had never seen anything like this. And it comes into... uh, and the play is God provides for them as they're in the wilderness. God provided for the Israelites miraculously for 40 years. Their shoes didn't wear out. Their clothes didn't wear out. Uh, they, uh, God provided food for them and water for them in miraculous ways, and yet they continued to grumble and complain about God's provision. Uh, for God to provide, you don't have to have the latest uh, fashions. You don't have to have... Uh, the things that uh, everybody else has, God is going to supply everything. Now, that doesn't mean that it's wrong to have nicer things or fashion or any of those things. It just means that uh, God is going to supply what you need at the time you are serving him. And so while they're in the wilderness, God was going to supply everything for them. And their rejection showed that they had no capacity for grace. And they were ungrateful, and gratitude is one of the key elements of grace orientation. So after they have left uh, Egypt, and they are first up at the in the wilderness of Shur, and they're headed towards Mount Sinai, and they go by the place of uh, bitter waters that uh, uh, God makes sweet, and then he goes to they go to the palms at Elim. And they journeyed from Elim, chapter 16, verse 1, and all the congregation of the children of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin. This, that's the shortened form of Sinai, S-I-N. It's not Sin, it is Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai on the 15th day of the second month after they departed from the land of Egypt. Then the whole congregation of the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness, and the children of Israel said to them, Oh, that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the pots of meat and when we ate bread to the full. So they're thinking back on all of that wonderful food that they had and the full bellies that they had back when they were in Egypt and all of the spices that they had that made the food so good. And they would rather have that than freedom. They have no capacity for the freedom that they have, they just want security. And that's often the juxtaposition that we have in history. The masses would rather have 
security than freedom because freedom brings with it tremendous risk. And when you have freedom, the risk means you're free to succeed, but you're also free to fail. And to the degree that the government comes along or anyone comes along and provides a safety net to protect you from failing, they're also going to limit success. And this is one of the problems with socialism. It's a direct attack on divine institution number one, as we've seen in previous studies. It was interesting today, uh, Chavez down in Venezuela said that the only thing that's going to get the world out of its current uh, mess economically is socialism. But he's just uh, dead wrong. The only thing that's going to get the world out of its mess to is responsibility. And that comes from uh, freedom, not from socialism. But we have a world today where people are just like the Jews, no capacity for grace, no capacity for freedom, no capacity for responsibility. They want somebody else to make all the decisions for them. So they, they just wanted to go back and be slaves rather than to be free. And they're blaming Moses for it. So the Lord is going to be gracious. He doesn't make an, notice he doesn't make an issue out of their moaning and groaning at this point. He responds to them. And because in the response, he just confirms their lack of gratitude. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you. This is one of the terms used for manna. Bread from heaven. Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a certain quota every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. So God is going to teach them that his grace is sufficient, but he's not going to give it to them all at once. He's going to give them enough for each day, and it will be sufficient. And they have to learn to trust him on a day-by-day, moment-by-moment basis, something like many of us have been doing the last two weeks as we've been uh, getting promises from Center Point that tomorrow, yes, you too will have power. And then tomorrow comes and power doesn't. So we have been living one day at a time. And thank God I got word just before class that power had come on. So we'll be modernized after Bible class. So God is going to test them whether they will be obedient or not. That's one of the reasons we go through suffering and adversity is to see if we're really going to trust God in the difficult circumstances. So God lays down the the, the uh, protocol for dealing with manna. They get enough for each day. If they get more than they're going to use, then what's left over is going to rot. And if they try to eat it, it's going to make them terribly sick. And they are going each day they go out and get enough for that day. And then at the end of the week, they're going to uh, be allowed to get enough for two days because on the Sabbath they aren't supposed to work. They don't go out and collect manna. And on that day, miraculously, the manna is not going to rot over that extended extra day period on Shabbat. So he outlines this to uh, to Moses, and then Moses and Aaron give uh, descriptions to or give give directions to all of the uh, Israelites, in the morning you'll see the glory of the Lord, for he hears your complaint against the Lord, verse 7. And But what are we that you complain against us? Notice how Moses and Aaron make an issue out of the complaining, but God didn't. And so uh, they are going to lay uh, lay out those the, the manna. But the Israelites are going to complain about this eventually because it's the same thing day after day after day. 
and anything, no matter how good it is, and you all know that I think that manna probably tasted like a hot Shipley donut, but I imagine that after, I don't know, a year or two, having a couple of hot Shipley donuts every morning is probably going to get a little bit old. I don't know. I'd like to give it a try. But they start complaining about that, and so God then sends, uh, he judges them with grace, and he sends the quails into the camp, and they all overeat and get, get sick from that. So the manna, which is first introduced here and becomes the standard way God provides for the nourishment through the uh, time in the wilderness, uh, is rejected. It is a rejection of God's provision. Now, there are various different ways in which uh, manna is described in the scriptures. In Exodus 16.4, as we just saw, it's just called the bread from heaven, indicating its source. God is the one who provided this bread for them. It said that it actually tasted like coriander seed. I'm not quite sure what coriander seed uh, would taste like, but um, I have a feeling I probably wouldn't care for it a whole lot. It, uh, coriander, isn't that like cilantro? So it's also referred to as the bread of angels. Now, that's not like angel food cake. It's indicating that this was, again, had a heavenly origin. Uh, Psalm 78, 24, and 25, He rained down manna upon them to eat and gave them food from heaven again. Man did not eat the bread of angels. He sent them food, in, or man did eat the bread of angels. He sent them food in abundance. And then in number one, Numbers 21, uh, verse 5, the Jews refer to it as miserable food. So they have completely rejected and are uh, mischaracterizing what God has provided for them. Now, the manna itself is said to depict something. It has a spiritual significance that it, it is used to symbolize something in the New Testament. And this is described in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses uh, 1 through 4. This is generally a summation of their time coming out of, of uh, Egypt. Paul says to the Corinthians, I don't want you to be unaware. Uh, he is saying, I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren. Now, if you were a postmodern 20-something today, you would get offended at that statement because what he just said was, you're already ignorant. And that's not politically correct. Nobody wants to say things like that. So, But you find that in the Bible all the time. I don't want you to be ignorant. Uh, so I'm going to give you information. Uh, I don't want you to be ignorant that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. The cloud refers to the presence of God. Passing through the sea is the uh, exodus as they go through the Red Sea as God parted the Red Sea and they're able to escape from the armies of Pharaoh. And then he says, and all were baptized into Moses. And that doesn't mean that they got wet, only the Egyptians got wet. All were baptized into Moses indicates the significance of baptism, which is identification. Those who went through the Red Sea were following the leadership of Moses. They're identifying with him uh, by means of the cloud and by means of the sea. And then subsequently... They all ate the same spiritual food. So the manna is uh, spiritual food. It depicts something spiritual just as the water and the rock 
uh, is going to depict something about the Lord Jesus Christ, which is indicated in verse 4, that they all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. So these events are used to depict something, uh, a doctrine in the spiritual realm. So the manna depicts God's provision. It depicts Jesus Christ. In John 6:32, Jesus said to his disciples, or Jesus said to the crowd, actually, truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven, referring to himself. So the bread of heaven, the manna, was to depict something about the person of the Lord Jesus Christ as the source of our spiritual nourishment. The second element is Aaron's rod that budded, and this indicates their rejection of God's provision of a high priest. This is seen in Numbers chapter 16. So turn with me over a couple of books, or one book, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, two books to number 7, 16 and 17. And here we see the rebellion of Korah against Moses and Aaron. Korah, the son of Ezar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi. So he's a Levite. He is a distant relative of Moses and Aaron. Along with uh, two other conspirators, Dathan and Abiram. Dathan is not Edward G. Robinson, if you've watched the Ten Commandments. Uh, that is a misrepresentation of, of uh, Dathan. Uh, he, Korah, along with Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and On, the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben. So these, so uh, Korah was a Levite, along with Dathan and Abiram, and On is not a Levite at all. He's not a priest. He is a Reubenite. And they're going to rise up in a rebellion against Moses' leadership, with 250 other leaders. So they've been working in the background to get this conspiracy together, and they're going to challenge Moses' leadership, and they're going to accuse him of just showing family favoritism to his brother Aaron. And so they say that you all have taken too much upon yourselves for the congregation is holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Notice how they use a religious rationale. God loves all of us. God is the Father of everyone. Why do you why do you say that there should, are, are uh, there's any kind of exclusivity in the plan of God? Just like a modern liberal, why do you say that you Christians? Why do you say you're the only ones who get to heaven? God's the Father of everybody. All roads lead to heaven. The Buddhists, the Muslims, the uh, uh, Jews. Everybody's going to get to heaven as long as they're sincere. But that's not uh, what God says. Uh, Dathan and Byram. Uh, Korah were all sincere, but they were sincerely wrong, and they're going to sincerely die uh, instantly. So when Moses heard of this challenge, he falls on his face. Now, why does he do that? Because he realizes the seriousness of what they're saying. They are confronting God. They don't really believe God means what he says when he's established these various uh, death penalties for encroaching upon uh the priesthood. So when Moses heard he fell on his face, he spoke to Korah and all his coming, saying, Tomorrow morning the Lord will show who is his and who is holy, that is, who is set apart to him, and will cause him to come near to him. 
that one whom he chooses, he will cause to come near to him. In other words, the choice is God's. It's not mine. Moses isn't showing favoritism to his brother. So he gives them a experiment to perform. Take your censers, that is the uh, uh, bowls in which the incense was burned. Take your censers. They take coals from the uh, uh, brazen altar. Take the censers, core, and all your company. Put fire in them. And put incense in them before the Lord tomorrow, and it shall be that the man whom the Lord chooses is the Holy One. You take too much upon yourselves, you sons of Levi. Then Moses said to Kor, Hear now, you sons of Levi, it's a small thing to you, uh, to you that the God of Israel has separated you from the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself to do the work of the tabernacle of the Lord. So you're still a priest, but you don't appreciate the role you have. You want to have a an even greater role. Well, as you read down through the chapter, what happens is that they are to take their their staves and put them inside the the altar, I mean, inside the tabernacle of meeting, and the next day when they get up, uh, the only one of the staffs that has sprouted green leaves and almonds and flowered is Aaron's, indicating that he is God's choice, and immediately uh, these uh, 250 are executed by God. And uh, we see that execution beginning in about verse uh, verse 25. Then Moses rose and went to Dathan and the elders, and he spoke to the congregation. He says, Depart now these, from the tents of these wicked men. Don't touch any things of theirs, lest you be consumed in all their sins, in other words, receive their punishment. So Korah, Dathan, and Byram go out. They go to their tents. They collect their families, their wives, their children, their infants. And they stand there. And then Moses says in verse 28, By this you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these works. Uh, if these men die naturally like all men, or they are visited by a common fate of all men, that the Lord has not sent me. But the Lord creates a new thing, and the but if the Lord creates a new thing, and the earth opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that belongs to them, and they go down alive into the pit, then you will understand that these men have rejected the Lord. This is this is serious. And can you imagine what that must have been like to have stood there and watched this, and all of a sudden you hear the earth you feel the earth vibrate and you hear the rumblings and it just separates right there at the tents where these men and their families are standing and verse 32 the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households and all the men with Korah and all their goods so they and all those with them went down alive into the pit and the earth closed over them and they perished after this i would not disobey god anymore any of these things, just once, okay, you know, I've straightened up and I, you're not going to have any more problems, but that shows that it's not a matter of uh, empiricism. It's a matter of volition. And the people have already rejected the grace of God. And so there is a continued complaint that takes place. The people continue to complain. I've never understood this. After witnessing this, on the next day, verse 41 The next day, all the congregation of the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron, saying, You have killed the people of the Lord. Oh, these were such wonderful people. They were so sincere, so religious. And Moses, you're just so tough. 
you're, you're, you know, this is just so terrible. You believing in capital punishment, you, you, you're terrible. You're a Republican. I just want to see if anyone's still awake. So the congregation gathers against Moses and Aaron, and God's going to teach them another lesson and sends a, a plague upon them. And in verse 49, we learn that 14,700 besides those who died in the Korah incident are killed in this plague. Approximately 15,000 Israelites die in this rebellion. So the uh, presence of Aaron's rod in the in the Ark of the Covenant represents this whole incident, which is the rebelliousness of the people against God's provision of a high priest. And again, it's a rejection of God's grace provision for the people in terms of leadership. But ultimately, God is going to provide a greater high priest than Aaron in the Lord Jesus Christ. And what are the Jews going to do? They're going to crucify him. They continue to reject the grace of God, which is the trend of the fallen human heart because of the uh, total depravity, because of our sinfulness. Now, that just covers the first two. That covers the uh, manna. It covers uh, Aaron's rod. We touched on, on the Ten Commandments. We'll come back, review that briefly next time, and then we'll go on to talk about the significance of the ark because when you get into... The next couple of chapters in, um, in, in Numbers, we see the role of the, of the high priest on the Day of Atonement and God's instructions to Aaron come directly out of uh, this rebellion of Korah and, uh, and Dathan and Abiram. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things, to be reminded of your grace, that there is judgment from your justice for sin, and that judgment fell upon the Lord Jesus Christ who bore in his body on the cross our judgment so that by faith alone in him we have eternal life, that he is the picture, the greatest picture of your love and your grace, and it is through him that we have all things and that we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now, Father, I pray that you would challenge us with the lessons we've studied tonight, realizing that you are a holy God, a distinct God, and that we have been called, just as Israel, to serve you. And we can only do that when we appreciate your grace and live in light of it. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.